Before today's episode kicks off, I have some podcast news for you. If you have a question for me about designing innovative machine learning and analytics products, user experience, a guest suggestion, or even just a comment, you can now record an audio question for me right from your phone or computer. Just head to designingforanalytics.com ask and tap the start recording button. No software to install, and you can remain anonymous if you like. Just let me know in the audio. Any questions I receive will be played live with my response on future Experiencing Data episodes. So when you're ready, just head over to designingforanalytics.com ask and let me know what's on your mind. Thanks. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today, I have Bessa Bauta on the line. Very excited to have her on the show to talk to you about her work at Mercy First as the chief data officer. Uh, we've been trying to get this on the books for a while, and then this global pandemic hit, <laughs> which uh, changed your job a bit. And I know you had picked up some data governance work and sounds like two jobs, at least, if not three. So I really appreciate you making the time. Welcome. And Thank you. First question I wanted to ask you, because we, we were talking on LinkedIn about how your team goes about building analytics solutions and data products and delivering insights to Mercy First. And whenever I see the D, the CDO, I'm always like, digital data or both? And like, what's that relationship and how do you see it? Because you, you can't really just do data without doing digital. Is that a meaningful conversation to have? Like, how do you see your role as delivering these products and services and insights to the business in, in terms of digital? So I agree. I think digital and data kind of go hand in hand. I think data is, you know, if you heard this statement as far as the oil, you know, Google had a presentation where they're like data is the next oil in the marketplace. I would like to think of digital as being something greater. It's not just the information or the collection of information. So data is basically information. I think we've used different nomenclature over time. And currently it has become into the parlance as the new you know, buzzword out there, but collecting information, using information to either improve businesses or practices has been around. What's new in the field is the whole process of digitization, basically leveraging a lot of the information technologies to get greater insights and actually move information at a faster pace. I think, you know, data is the basic element, the digitization or digital aspect is what you bring value to, you know, the whole enterprise. So I see those as, you know, two separate terms, but they are interrelated. One is the essential components, and then the other one is sort of more enterprise-wide element that's important in improving processes and systems. One thing, so I, I kind of break this world in my own consulting and training and the stuff that I do and maybe this divide doesn't make sense, but you have the digital native companies, the tech companies where they're selling software or they're entirely online. And then you have the traditional companies doing other types of work that have internal data quote teams or digital teams. And the way they make software tends to be different. I'm totally generalizing. It typically feels behind 
slower, not as effective as the way tech companies, which have had 20 solid years now of failing and learning better ways to do this. How do you go about making sure that the solutions when they're presented to your, you know, your internal, or maybe you can tell us a little bit about who the users of your data products are at Mercy First. How do you make sure that it's actually working, that it's providing value, that decisions are being made with the data, all these things that this last mile, as I often call it, what do you do to make sure that people will use this stuff? Because the failure rates are really high in our industry. So, I mean, I like to look at it slightly differently. I think you're correct. You have technology companies that is their bread and butter to sort of develop systems and processes to, you know, whatever, improve either financial functions, improve insurance, or improve whatever other, you know, sector. So there are the developers and where the consumers in that process. I mean, I look at it that way. As a social service or a healthcare organization, we're technically not digital natives in a lot of ways. Obviously, for insurance-related purposes, patient outcomes, we have to collect a lot of that data. But our focus is slightly different. I mean, our focus is slightly on improving health and well-being. So the systems have to be in place as part of that pathway for health and well-being, obviously, for reimbursement and payment schemes. And I don't think it's a fair comparison us with technology companies. I mean, definitely we're, you know, failing forward, but is there bread and butter to develop these technologies? And it's much more integrated into the way they work because they are developing them, they're utilizing them and iteratively making them much better over time. However, they would not have a customer where their customers in a lot of ways and their solutions have to meet our needs. So let it be an insurance company where, you know, they're improving processes for their, you know, partners or for us in our patient profile. In a way, whatever solutions that we have has to meet our needs in order to improve outcomes. So for us is that we take multiple different solutions, you know, to meet our needs. There's not one unified solution. So if you have a technology companies, they do have a lot of product and portfolios, but in a way it's more centralized. For us, what we're doing, especially in the healthcare sector, is sourcing different vendors, sourcing different application to meet our needs, but they're almost like retrofitted. They're not homegrown. Actually, a lot of organizations in healthcare and social server organizations are developing their homegrown because they don't see anything else in the marketplace that actually meets their unique environment or needs. And we're learning, obviously we're not technology companies, number one. So for us is finding those right partners that understand our use cases, number one, but also are willing to work alongside us to actually develop something that our end users, for example, physicians are able to use in their interaction with the patient. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you're doing a fair amount of getting your partners that have off the shelf and then doing some type of level of customization around your particular Correct. needs and all of that. I'm curious, what's the process of helping them? Like at some point, someone has to, you know, typically in a, in a tech company, it'd be a, a product manager, but someone's going to own a backlog of quote, you know, here are the changes or the modifications we need to make to satisfy Bess's needs at your organization. Somehow that decision needs to get made about the order of those things, which things they're going to say yes to, which things they're going to say no to. What kinds of activities do you do to go figure out like which hungry mouth will get served within your organization the most? Who's going to have to deal? Sorry, you get off the shelf Tableau or whatever you don't get. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to give you any custom dashboards. You just get plain Jane start from scratch. 
But over here in operations, you guys get, you know, gold level service. How do you figure out who needs what and designing those solutions and then getting them into the funnel to do the engineering and the data work? Well, I mean, for us, let's say even, you know, when we're, we're selecting our electronic health renders or other partners is actually working with them to understand our needs. But they have a business. Usually technology companies have a product that they want to sell and don't want to customize that product so much for a sector. Otherwise that, you know, then you lose the ability to actually sell it to the next partner. And then you don't want to, you know, sink in a lot of development time, especially for like one user. You know, you want to have an application that can go cross users. So for us, it's sort of working with our vendors and other, you know, technology partners to understand our needs, number one, but allow us to have that transfer of knowledge. So if you're going to give us a baseline package, you know, provide that wraparound support for us to do that customization or that engineering support that meets our needs. That way you, you know, we're purchasing a product, but you're providing the right support for us to continue and consume this product. So it's sustainable over time. No one wants to have a different type of application every other week, every other month or every year. We want to have a solution that grows with the organization. So that's step number one. I think step number two, that's a really important question. Who gets the best application? And usually who pays for it (laughs) oftentimes or who screams the loudest? It really depends. For us, we have a different type of approach. We have different divisions and each of those divisions have different needs. So for us, there's only so many projects we could handle at one time. And we would have to think about which project brings the greatest return on investment or what has the shortest, you know, from working as far as taking it from uh, concept to development. And then what we have found is that sometimes the longer projects that take much more time and energy and, you know, things end up fizzling out. So what we have done is actually picked a few projects that have small wins in order to demonstrate organizationally that, yes, this is the right path, that look at the return on investment here. If we could duplicate this across the spectrum with higher needs processes, then you would have, you know, this much return on that investment. But it's almost like a colleague of mine is like, how do you eat an elephant? And I'm like one piece at a time. Same thing for us is that you tackle one project at a time and ensure with smaller project that you get those types of outcomes. The bigger the projects are, there's too many wheels moving that you really don't know if you're having the right impact, number one, but also the project management takes a greater role. And sometimes organizations do not have the capacity for larger project management. Yeah, I often talk these days about product management and not just project, especially if you are developing custom solutions or there's a long-term vision for how like off the shelf needs to be customized. You're effectively talking about the role of product just as much as you are the day-to-day scrums or whatever, you know, methodology you're using to build out stuff. How do you measure the success of these tools? Like if we think about data large, and maybe you don't think of this way as largely about providing decision support or decision intelligence. How do you measure that it's doing a good job? Like what's the KPI for the KPIs? Like, (laughs) I think we talk about a lot about KPIs and sort of like short wins, but really to see if they're really having outcomes, you need a really good study. And I haven't seen that many, you know, excellent studies out there or like randomized controlled trials that actually takes to task what we are implementing and does it have an impact downstream? For us, I think it's just understanding, does it improve the processes for our physicians? So if a physician is meeting with a patient, having them navigate the electronic health record where they're spending 45 minutes with a patient 
instead of spending 15 minutes, I think that's a small win. So for our end users, I think one way to evaluate it is, are you bringing valuable support or technologies that improve the way they're delivering service? I think it's key. So if our providers are seeing a value add in their workflows, then I think that's a really good KPI in and above patient outcomes. So if we do a better job at supporting our staff and supporting our frontline providers to provide the service, then I'm assuming de facto that through that better interaction that the patients and clients have a better experience. If they're not fidgeting with, you know, moving in from screen to screen to screen, and they're actually looking at the client, that's a win. And it's also a win for the client. I understand there's, you know, for us, we're in a world where everything gets measured, everything gets tracked but not everything is important in the end. And sometimes that human interaction and that process is just as important. So I see the digital tools and the data as an important element, but they're not the whole picture in that process of you know, providing care for us. And in order to improve decision-making, I think that individual interaction needs to be improved between our clinicians as well as our patients. If that gets improved, then I think, you know, our outcomes and decision-making gets improved as well. And also sourcing the right information for our clinicians so they understand what they need to target at that point in time. Got it. So you actually mentioned a couple things that I would consider user experience metrics that could be tracked. So like reduction in the time spent either using software in a patient doctor setting or just a shorter time overall, the entire appointment is shorter or it's lower tool time, right? less screens, less time, like they literally use the iPad for less time, but at the end of the day, they push the button. So we know the record was updated, but it's 10 times faster than it used to be. Are those things you you measure either quantitatively or even qualitatively through some kind of design exercise or usability evaluation or like who does that work and how, how do you my team does that work. <laughs> oh, that your team does that work. Yes, okay. my team does that work. Uh-huh. So user experience, user interaction is really important as, as you're going to be implementing a lot of these technologies that you want to ensure that they have the right uptake as well as sustainability long term. That's important. Recently, I saw a really interesting application where somebody has developed an AI application where the physician just talks and the AI application basically is able to determine if it's a patient or a physician or a nurse in that interaction pathway and actually enter that automatically into the electronic health record. So that would save a lot of time. So the data capture aspect of it, I think it's fascinating. It's a necessary evil, we have to deal with it, but is it possible to sort of leverage some of these latest technologies to take that burden off of our clinicians or off of the providers so they could have that natural interaction with the data capture? Obviously, that creates a lot of ethical issues, (laughs) but it's definitely an interesting concept to think about. Yeah, yeah. I think when when we first connected, we we were talking about design and you had mentioned Apple and we talked, it sounded like your team had gone through some training and it sounded like there was, you said there, it was difficult getting buy-ins from some of your customers. And I was curious if you could kind of unpack what you were talking about in that, if you remember that context from our original chat. It is always hard to get buy-in, especially with something new. You know, we're interested in sort of bringing in biosensors and other sensors, especially during COVID, you know, remote temperature sensors. And the conversation that, you know, especially now, where will this data go? 
Yes, it's definitely an ease, you know, sort of, you know, collecting temperature for anybody that comes in or collecting all of this information, but it's definitely a new technology. So there has to be a, a process of adaptation regarding how do you use this technology for what purpose, number one, and is it really going to improve my health and well-being or my life or whatever work processes? And people always have fears. I mean, with anything new, there is always the fear what does this really mean for me? What does it mean for my safety, for my well-being? And will it really improve the outcomes, you know, the way that we have stated? And those are always things that, you know, I think about all the time as well. You know, if I'm getting an Apple Watch or if I'm getting the latest and greatest, you know, Alexa in my home, you know, you worry about those things. And sometimes they're rational fears. I understand that. It sounds like in this context, then when you talked about users, you were talking about actually patients. So patient facing yes. technology, as opposed to internal solutions used by your, your staff or, or uh, healthcare providers, <laughs> et cetera. Oh, it's so it's difficult on the internal side, too. I think it's difficult on the internal side as well. And the internal side is sort of adopting new technologies for workflow processes. So we have a recent project that we partner with an organization to bring robotic process automation in a way, taking what our, some of our staff do as far as data entry and just getting rid of that human in the middle process and just automating the data entry from one system to another. And obviously for a lot of our staff, that's also fear. You're gonna have a robot take my job. You know, it's like the robot is not taking your job. The robot is actually facilitating that process. So in a way it's taking something that's redundant and allowing you to actually concentrate that time on something much more meaningful and useful rather than a task that can be automated and it's redundant. And having a robot or an algorithm run taking information from one to the other, they're able to do it, you know, it's able to do it, it's an it, you know, much faster, number one, but also with fewer errors. However, the person or the human in the middle of that equation is to ensure that it's the right information at all times, number one, but it's also relevant and useful information. So it's not that it's replacing, it's augmenting that process. And I think the fear comes, you know, they're not understanding a lot of these new technologies, you know, sort of the whole black box concept of what, you know, do natural language processing applications mean? Is the chatbot actually listening? Are they providing the right information? And sort of understanding that even from a developer perspective, as well as a user perspective. Is this bringing of these new technologies into your organization? Is this something where you've had to come up with a repeatable process to do this because it's happening a lot? Or is it more, it's infrequent that you're going to stir the nest up a little bit with oh, some I of the things the nest. <laughs> quite a bit. Do you, so do you have a repeated process for, you know, designing these experiences in so that they're not as disruptive and maybe there's, you know, more adoption early on or there's less resistance or is there a way you go about doing that? I think earlier on to sort of engage with the right stakeholders and the key stakeholders is really important. You're going to have important gatekeepers. They're going to say, no, 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 the naysayers. So I start with the naysayers first the harder nuts to crack and say, how can this improve your process or your service? If I could win them over, the rest is cake, I think. Well, almost, not all the time. In a way, if I could show, that's why I was mentioning smaller pilots, that if you could show smaller wins that shows that outcome or demonstrable value, then it's an easier sell across the board. But if you have nothing to show except for concepts and theory, nothing in real that they could touch, 
then for them is much, and for me, it's a harder sell across the board to bring in an additional technology and say, hey, this will bring an additional value. If I haven't demonstrated a value for, you know, product number one, you know, there is no historical track that I'm able to demonstrate value for product number two if we bring on board, even though that might be analogous and supportive structures. I think it's really important to have individuals right from the beginning co-develop application the way we're working with our vendors. I mean, we understand the process much better. We understand the environment much better. They have the technology, but we have the environment that the technology needs to adapt to and meet the needs. Same thing for our users. I don't understand specifically, you know, what their day-to-day -day looks like, but they are the key stakeholders in that process to help us co-design an application that actually meets their needs. So their voice is really important in that process. So having those voices earlier on just makes everything much easier across the board. It was interesting you talked about, you kind of go after the naysayers first, which I thought was interesting. I think a lot of places try to find the evangelists, find the advocates, and then kind of work it a different way. So how much of this is a push versus pull? You're pushing new tech, new ideas, new ways of doing stuff with data onto them versus they're saying, we want a chat bot to do X. We want to collect you know, digital temperature readings. How much is it push versus pull? And when you said they're a naysayer, is that ever on the projects where they're the ones that requested it and they're also the naysayer? Or is it usually when you're introducing something? It really depends on the scenario, Brenda. That's really funny that you say that. I had introduced a chatbot about a year and a half ago, two years. And I'm like, look, it's a mercy chatbot and couldn't help, you know, patients navigate. And at that time, you know, they looked at that application. They're like, very interesting. And it didn't go anywhere because the organization was not ready. They had no idea what I was talking about, number one, even though chatbots have existed, you know, in many different industries. But it didn't feel important at that point in time. They didn't understand the whole concept of it. And I think initially when I came in, it's sort of thinking through what are the systems now? What's out there in the marketplace? What has worked? So don't touch what has worked, right? The point is, how can we improve it, even incrementally, to make lives better? And then start there with small wins. So for us, is you know, as you said, targeting those naysayers from the beginning, they become your biggest evangelist if you could show them here, look, I have improved a service or a value for you and I've saved this much time and this is what your outcomes look like. In a way, you don't have to have those evangelists, you know, beating the drum. You have the hard naysayers kind of saying, hey, this worked for me, you know, actually opening those gateways and saying, you know, bringing the additional technology, bringing this additional resources to help us. Got it. Got it. I didn't really give you a chance to talk about exactly what it is that your organization does and also who are the literal end users of these different digital solutions that use data, whether it's internal or patients or whatever? Can you give people an overview just so we can put the show a little in, more into context? So our end users usually are social workers, our mental health counselors, our pediatricians, our nurses, our psychiatric nurse practitioners, our healthcare managers. So it's basically healthcare providers that are there in the front lines providing services to the most disenfranchised communities in New York City and Long Island. So these are the people, you know, during time of COVID, they're out there visiting families, providing those basic support needs, especially now we see how important it is and providing them with the right tools, providing them with the right technology to be able to do their job safely, securely, especially earlier on during the pandemic, we didn't know what this would mean as far as, you know, infection rate within communities 
And my team was able to like take a lot of the work that Johns Hopkins did and use those mapping to figure out what our service provision areas look like as far as infection rates, and then figure out a plan, where can we deploy staff into the field as safely as possible to meet patient needs, obviously, because that's the most important thing that we do provide is, you know, that home-based, community-based services, but also do it in a safe way so our frontline workers or our essential, you know, workers are not affected by this pandemic. So those are end users of a lot of the, you know, technology and the products that we have developed. And we moved earlier on to move to online and virtual platforms without thinking that pandemic was, you know, looming. We had no idea, but we were better pressed to deal with some of the challenges that came afterwards because we had done a lot of that work earlier on. Mm -hmm. We were talking about in our chat about human-centered design in, in the context of these data products. And, and you mentioned this co-design activity or where we have, I assume, stakeholders or literal customers are involved early and along the way. They're not waiting three months and then seeing something for the first time that they never heard about. Is that working for you? If, if it's not working, what are the challenges involved with that, with actually getting them involved and kind of brought along the way? It's definitely working. There's always challenges. One of the biggest challenges is time. They do have day jobs. They're committed to, you know, I'm asking them to sort of comment or provide support into products and services in addition to what they have to do in their daily nine to five. So time has always been a challenge. But like I said previously, if you could demonstrate that their added time and value will bring, you know, a resource that would save them time, then we have quite a lot of buy-in. But I think human centered design is so critical for any technology and product that will be developed in the next 10 or 15 years. And the more that it's integrated into our daily lives where it's like an afterthought. I mean, you have like Siri or Alexa in the background and I could just ask them, you know, what is the weather like without having to like log on my computer? It's being integrated into the way we're doing things, makes things much easier to adopt technology. Even for specialized services, let's say, I mean, we have kids with autism that we provide services. So utilizing technologies to help improve their health and well-being, number one, but also in a way that allows them to function in their environment with, you know, technology support. So they're able to lead almost normal lives with, you know, these supported resources. I think that's where the future is going to be. Mm -hmm. And how did you bring the skill of doing human-centered design into your group? Like, do you have designers and UX professionals that lead that? Or is this something where everyone does some of that? Or like, who runs that process? So we partner with external organizations. And we've done a lot of seminars, other things where we learned about human-centered design, but also working with our vendors and partners to build that into the project portfolio from the get-go rather than sort of as an afterthought, oh, we have to think about how this will be integrated into the environment. I think thinking about the integration piece, thinking about the environment from the beginning, it helps sort of have a better fit between a product and a use of that product within that, you know, process or that environment. So working with our, you know, EHR vendors, our AI vendors, our different, you know, sort of technology companies and having them work alongside us. So as far as like having skilled folks from their divisions, because we don't have the capacity to have UX, UI folks that or engineers, you know, to have on board. And for us, it's a cause that I cannot 
consume or maintain, but bringing in that for every single product portfolio, requesting that from our vendors, I think that has been what we have done. Have you seen a difference in how the outcomes are when you do and you don't do that? Or was there a moment where you're like, okay, in the future, I'm doing it this way because you know this other way didn't work? Like, I don't think that's how a lot of, especially in the data products world, I don't think that's how a lot of places do it. And so I'm curious, what made you decide that we need to do it this way? Like, what was the moment or was there a failure? Was there a failure? Like, <laughs> was it one? Was it a buildup? And, and how did you know, like, this is what we need to be doing to avoid that problem? Where did that come from? Well, like I said, failure. Initially, we had designed a COVID app about a year ago, and this is a demonstrable failure where we had designed it. We brought another product, another partner and decided to deploy it and realized pretty quickly that the questions that we were asking, the fit with the environment, the fit with our users was definitely way off. And learned pretty quickly that I got quite a lot of resistance across the board. My team got quite a lot of resistance. And we realized pretty quickly that we had to scrap it, even though it was like two or three months you know, worth of work. Iteration number two, we started early involving the different stakeholders and having them tell us you know, what are the essential components? What do we need to track? How do we need to track it? How do you want the information fed back to you? Because they're the consumers of that information. And building those pathways in, definitely we saw change and also buy-in and not only the development, but also now that we're finally rolling out the application that we developed with our Microsoft partners, that the adoption was much greater, the ease of that adoption, because it kind of fit and we took their questions, their comments and concerns into that development as well. So failure is usually mother of all inventions as a you know, <laughs> necessity. I'm not sure one or the other. Yeah, yeah. That's how a lot of places, I think, figure it out. You know, it's like <laughs> all that development doesn't count if no one uses it. You know, when it gets out, it just doesn't matter how great the model was or, you know, whatever the underlying technology is, you know, if it, was it doesn't a dud. Get, yeah, if it doesn't get used, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So this is related to that question, but as you move into starting to use artificial intelligence and machine learning and some of these these newer technologies, and, and maybe those are vendor tools, is anything now changing again about how you approach doing that because they use these different technologies or not necessarily? Is it mostly the same? Um, I would say it's slightly different. I think with AI, there's still that fear. Even though AI has been around, there's if you look underneath the hood, it's not anything too earth shattering. It's just scale. Most of the algorithms have been around for many, many years. It's just a scale or new approaches of, you know, integrating different methodologies that, you know, especially now within the development cycle, we have seen with neural nets and a few other things. So there's still that fear, you know, as far as how the information will get used, what information will get sourced. I think for our clinician, one of the questions that one of the clinicians raised is that why would I trust an AI telling me, you know, this patient needs this? I have 20 years of medical school. And what I basically I told them, like, it's not that I want to replace you or your medical school or your clinical training. I'm just augmenting and sourcing another level of information that otherwise it might take you a long time to source or we all have blind spots. So basically, just like with a GPS that tells you, you know, go this way, this is the shortest route. I'm just showing you another alternative options, but it's up to you and your clinical decision-making to say that's the right option or that's not the right option. It's just sourcing or augmenting that you know information to allow for better decision-making. But there's still fear around that for a lot of folks. Are you finding yourself 
having to change the product or the experience to accommodate that? Or is it wait for the people to change? Like what, what's your approach? I think changing the product. So we were working on a natural language processing application with another vendor and we're co-designing that application as basically using our EHR narrative data to source different information that otherwise our clinicians, it would take days or weeks to actually look at a patient's medical records. And some of those medical records can be years old and basically show them a timeline of what it looked like within different domains of health, well-being, mental health, that it's an additional layer of information, including what are the crisis points that the patient had throughout their timeline. And for the clinician to have that you know, displayed in a way that they're able to consume that information. So we had to work with them in that process to design and include the right elements not necessarily as far as the sourcing of their information, but more in the consuming of, their, of that information. How do you want this displayed? How do you want this visualized? What would be important for you to be alerted at what point in time? And how will you use this information? I think that's the most important components that we have gotten feedback and designed that from the earlier on with our providers. Do you guys have a process for validating those designs and experiences prior to a full technology commitment to building them out? Like at the mock-up stage, the prototype stage, do you do some kind of work or, or not so much? No, we do work throughout the process, asking feedback, focus groups with our providers, what they like, what they didn't like, what they think needs further development as an iterative sprint process where there's changes with different information coming rather than just waiting for the product to get developed and say, hey, here you go. And then you're running into continuous, you know, reiterations. I think it's just easier to reiterate and, you know, configure the product earlier on so then it fits rather than just having something, you know, off the shelf and trying to make it fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it difficult to get, I mean, you talked about this time, so I'm always interested in like, the ability of people to provide the, even though it's in their interest, right? It's getting that access to their time and all of that. Do you have a, a specific team or people that kind of own that process of getting it in front, doing evaluation, taking the learnings back to the, you know, engineering or data science team or whoever, you know, is involved? Is that owned by like one person or the, maybe the partner owns it? So my division owns that as part of like the evaluation aspect of it, working with our vendors, sort of soliciting that feedback, continuous feedback from our end users, and then taking that feedback back to our vendors and customizing it further. So we have to own it. Somebody has to own the data, the analytics, you know, sort of the tailoring of those applications. But I see that as almost like a partnership relationship. I'm not alone. You know, I'm in an ecosystem with others and I see our partners, our vendors, our providers as being co-developers in a lot of these applications. I don't say that I've developed them. Like we have done this, not I have done this. Mm -hmm. Is that difficult? Just, I would think the dance of like what they, you know, they have their product roadmap. You guys need it to be, you know, red. They like, well, blue, we don't really have a way to like, and I'm oversimplifying talking about theming colors here. That's not the point. Is that a difficult thing to to navigate with them and constant trade-offs and this kind of thing? It's always a difficult thing with our partners to navigate. They have a certain product roadmap that they need to stick with. And I want development a lot faster. So what I've what my team has done is created work groups with our vendors and others to sort of shift developmental timelines, number one, but change their sort of roadmap as far as what needs to go into production first or development and production first. 
and then ensure there's like a tiered approach to meet our needs or meet our partner needs because you know we work as a collective it's not just one healthcare organization there's many health and social service organizations that are on the same boat so having our partners be responsive and reflective of what we need and have their product portfolios you know get tailored to for us to consume them i think yeah. that's important on their part Sounds almost like the unions, you know? <laughs> like, I know. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great to go back to that time? Solidarity. Collected? <laughs> well, Vesa, this has been a great conversation. I just, you know, kind of in closing, I wanted to give you the microphone and a chance to tell us anything else that you think my audience needs to hear about in terms of, you know, how you design human-centered data products and driving adoption, making them more valuable and useful. Do you have any other like closing advice or things you'd like to share? Sure. I mean, I think for me, and this is sort of lessons learned, is that it's really important to think about the human in the middle of this entire process. Because sometimes products get developed, things get developed, and there's the next shiny object without really thinking about, you know, do I really need this other shiny object in my life? Is it going to improve the way I do things? Is it going to improve anything? Then why do I need this additional shiny object? You know, same thing. Like earlier on, I bought an iPhone and a Samsung, and then I ended up downloading a whole bunch of different applications. And I'm like, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And realized pretty quickly that only use few of all of those applications. That I mean, those applications were better tailored to me, number one, but also better tailored to what I needed at that time. So when I think about personalized medicine, personalized health, personalized anything, the more personalized a product is and a technology product is, I think the better it is and the greater the adoption. Appreciate the choir here on that. So thank you for coming on and sharing your experience with us. It's been great to have you. It's a pleasure, Brian, as usual. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Wait, wait, wait. Did this episode leave you with some unanswered questions or a comment? Well, you can now send me an audio question or comment right from your phone or computer. Just head to designingforanalytics.com ask and tap the start recording button. There's no software to install and you can remain anonymous if you like. Just let me know when you're recording. If you're selected, I'll play your question and my response to it on a future Experiencing Data episode. That link again is designingforanalytics.com ask. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.